The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we explore the magic of music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and relive your favorite movies through music. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Let's have a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we play today. recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. He was so passionate about movies and movie soundtracks that he created his own publication, Film Score Monthly, while still a high school student in 1990. Initially a Xerox newsletter, which I am proud to say I still have copies of it from those days, Film Score Monthly became an industry standard magazine and later a website. He created a CD label, licensing and releasing 250 albums of classic and film and television music. Uh, he's also produced numerous other albums, including the classic James Bond soundtracks and a box set of music from the original Star Trek TV series. He's expanded into filmmaking, having worked on films Lucky Bastard and Sky Fighter, as well as a pilot for television called Game. So he's doing a little bit of everything. Uh, this man has brought joy to many, including me, with his efforts to bring uh, previously unreleased film scores to collectors and fans. Now, I'm not overstating his impact, and I think you'll see why as we review his work today. I hope all of you will please join me in uh, welcoming Lucas Kindle to our program today. Hi, Lucas. Hello. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us today, and I, I really, I'm not, uh, I'm not overstating it. I, there, were, there were scores or bits of music from films that I never ever thought I'd be able to play on my stereo that thanks to you and I and I think you were the one who really started it off uh, that I was able to finally get to, to, to hear some of those things and we'll we'll be talking about that today um, we usually start our programs with our guests to, to have you just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself uh, growing up and school and things of that nature family uh, so if you would maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself in the in the early years well, sure. I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. I was very lucky. My dad was a doctor there, and uh, it's a, a great place to grow up. Um, but not well. It is a. It, it does have a lot of um, Hollywood sorts uh, vacationing, but it's it can be pretty remote, especially in the winter. And I really loved movies, and and I really loved movie music. And when I was a kid in the 1980s, it was very hard to find any information about them. This is before the internet. Yeah. So if you wanted to know what movies Jerry Goldsmith had scored, you had to go to the video store and look at the, the credits on the video boxes. There was no IMDb. So uh, when I was 15 or 16, I used to read Starlog magazine. I sent them a letter saying, does anyone want to start like a fan club about movie soundtracks? Write me. And uh, a dozen people did. And I started sending them a newsletter and then more people found out about it. And 
it became went from like a dozen people to 50 or 60 to two or 300. And I graduated high school in 1992. I went off to college and I kept doing this fanzine as a, as a sort of amateur magazine. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was really fun. Then I graduated college in 96 and I moved to Los Angeles and I kept doing it. And then I became interested in producing uh, CDs myself and was able to get some contacts to do the licensing and, and producing. And then I did that. And then I was approaching 40 and I said, I've had enough of this. So <laughs> um, <clears throat> now I'm trying to get into filmmaking, but sort of, I guess that's the, uh, the log line of my life um, so far. Yeah. It, yeah. How did you, in those early days then, how were you getting your information? Because, you know, I would refer to your newsletter to find out who was scoring what in the future and, uh, and and little tidbits about film scores and those. I mean, how did you get that information, especially prior to the the days of uh, the internet? I'll I'll tell you exactly what happened. My dad, my dad's a doctor. Or he was a doctor for forty years in Martha's Vineyard, and from time to time he he'd see people, whether it was in the emergency room where he was an ER doctor, or like he would do, he would give physicals to Hollywood folks who needed to, uh, like the insurance approval for their next job. And and he and he doesn't really he doesn't really like movies, but he really likes his sons, and so he <laughs> met, um, he's met some sort of Hollywood uh, personnel from time to time, and he would tell them about his son, and he met a composer, a television composer named Fred Mollin, M O L L I N, who was the composer of the Friday the Thirteenth TV series, and he did this Canadian sci-fi show called uh, Beyond Reality, and he told. Fred about me and Fred, uh, Fred, Fred's a dad and a nice, nice man. And he said, Oh, I'd love to meet him. And so I went to meet Fred when he was summering at his summer house in Martha's Vineyard. And he, Fred was like, here's some people in Los Angeles who I, who you really ought to meet because they're, they work at record labels or they're also big fans of movie scores and, and they'll give you information for your magazine. Wow. And that's how I met some people in Los Angeles who were, um, who, who were working at GMP Crescendo and some of the other boutique companies at that time. And, and, uh, it, it sort of word of mouth spread about this kid back East who was precociously publishing this sort of snotty journal because it <laughs> had an attitude. I had an attitude and it had a personality to it. So it kind of caught on amongst people who liked this uh, this little subgenre because again, this is right before the internet has right. uh, has brought the World Wide Web to people. So if you wanted to to find out who was scoring what, you you really couldn't. And um, there were a couple of magazines about movie soundtracks, but they were typically quarterly. And so I, I thought it would be like really hot to do a monthly one so that people could get really up-to-date monthly news. Of course, now it's all instantaneous. You know, we find out on right. Twitter. So that's, but that's how I got sort of plugged into the scene. Huh. Was there a particular moment or moments uh, or a film that sparked you to, to, to get this interest in film music? It was, you know, like a certain movie or just a certain time. What was it that kind of yeah, all of a sudden the, lit those star Wars movies when I was, um, they, you know, they say you, you sort of, it's whatever kind of touches your heart when you're a little kid. And so I was like six, seven, eight years old and the star Wars movies, the first trilogy were very big and I had all the toys and my brother and I 
uh, we draw pictures and 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 play with the the action figures and and uh, I it was actually the Star Wars radio show that hmm. I would listen to and you may remember that NPR did like a thirteen I think it was thirteen parts for the first Star Wars movie and then they did a ten part series for The Empire Strikes Back and they. They would, they would they would play the the music throughout their their radio production and mm-hmm. I really got into the music so I think mm-hmm. that's what really um, captured my imagination yeah that makes total sense and it's a great segue into our uh, first cue that you had picked out as one of your favorites uh, this particular one is is uh, called hyperspace and it is from uh, one of the Star Wars movies The Empire Strikes Back tell us a little bit about your thinking of including that amongst your favorites um, it's one of my favorite films, and uh, you asked for favorite scores, so I didn't. I, I thought I would, I would pick the obvious ones and not really do deep cuts. But this was a piece that always it had a, a an energy and a texture that just was um, was so engrossing to me as a little kid, and still when I watch it as a as an adult, um, The Empire Strikes Back is kind of the pinnacle for me of that kind of storytelling, where it it has the fantasy and the imagination, but it also has a substance to it and a and um, a verisimilitude to that world that they create, and all the characters are frustrated, and they're, they're kind of it. It has it has a humanity to it. It has a a texture to it, and and the score. This is the climax of the movie when when uh, you know, spoilers. The Millennium Falcon is escaping from Cloud City, and nothing's working, and um, it's just the, the the John Williams cue. I just I just love the sound of it. The the da 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 that that figure and glorious the you know the brass triads going up and down and so well let's all time favorites yeah well let's let the music do the talking for itself. This is a cue called Hyperspace from The Empire Strikes Back, written by John Williams. Thank you. 
I'm curious. Are you are you a musician? I mean, do you do you play an instrument or instruments? Um, not really. I played a couple of things when I was a little kid, just taking music lessons as a little kid, which I, I recommend for all little kids. And so I'm probably the world's worst keyboard player, but I am a fan and I did study music in college. So I'm sort of an amateur dilettante musician. Well, in other words, unlike me, I, I, because I, you know, I just know what I like, but I don't know necessarily why I like it. I can't describe, you know, oh, was this technique or, or they did this or, and I've already noticed you've used a couple of terms there. So you obviously have some training in music and understand it. Yeah. Enough to show off badly. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, yes, I, I, it was something I was really interested in, and, and I thought that if I'm publishing a magazine that's sort of a, a paper of record of this art form, I should learn about music. So I did take some musicology classes, music theory classes, and and it's something that interests me. So I've I've kind of taught myself um, harmony and 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 um, and music theory and. En- enough to understand it, which is it doesn't come naturally to me the way some other things do, but I, I, I really enjoy it. And um, it's been very useful actually for making films because if you understand if you understand how music works in a film because it's not verbal, but if you are able to verbalize it, then it makes it so much easier to direct actors and to direct visual effects because you're understanding tone. Mm-hmm. And understanding uh, culture and your understanding drama, so it's it's a very useful um, skill, I think, to to know something about. Yeah, so it obviously helped you in your work in producing soundtracks, and now you're saying it's actually helping you in in branching out into producing and directing, and so you you find it to be helpful for that too. Then I, I absolutely do. I really <laughs> do because so much of why music works in a film is because of the. The tone, the the level of, of theatricality that you're going for, and that's something that's indicated by the score, and that affects human behavior. and And movies are all about human behavior. So if you understand that amount of um, of what genre your storytelling is falling into, it's not just that uh, it's not just the music. It helps. It helps how you're how you're stylizing the actors. It helps how you're stylizing the cinematography to just to understand that and to be able to, to have your, to have a theory, to have a plan and not just to be guessing. So if you were to talk with a composer who's working on your, on your film, unlike most directors, you actually can say, here's what I want and why. I can. And I did when we were doing a a sci-fi short film and I had a very good experience with the composer and, and hopefully vice versa where he was like, Whoa, you know, who who are you? (laughs) Um, because a lot of times they're, they're just like, you know, the, the, the director's very inarticulate and, and it, it's very mysterious, mysterious. And I was able to sort of say what I want. And then the two of us together could figure out how to get there as opposed to just sort of randomly guessing at things. Yeah. We've, we've had several conversations already on the podcast with some composers that talk about the relationship with the directors and, uh, some click and some don't, and it's uh, it's just fascinating to watch how that collaboration works or sometimes doesn't work. And I'm always reminded of the uh, the story with Born Free, where John Barry had a horrible experience working with that that producing and and director, and uh, but and yet produced an Oscar winning score. I think that's what set the set the stage for him later in his career, where he kind of felt like he was above any kind of feedback, you know, after 
after that experience. But uh, it's it's definitely a collaboration. I'm I know that. Um, the next one you chose. Gosh, I'm taking a theme here. This is sci-fi special. Let's see. We're the next film is Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, which is one of my favorites. I loved that. Uh, this cue is called Enterprise Attacks Reliant and uh, written by James Horner. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, choose that that score and that particular cue. Well, it's my favorite Star Trek movie and one of my all-time favorite scores. And again, I thought you were asking for kind of all-time favorites. I, I right. figured, okay, I'll go, go for the obvious ones. So this this cue is was not on the vinyl. It was not on the original soundtrack album. Huh. And it was the, it was one of the pieces I most wanted to hear when I finally tracked down the record and I bought a used copy because it had gone out of print. And I was so angry when it skipped this piece and it went right from the previous space battle into the next piece. And I was like, oh, no, they left it off. So <laughs> um, like 20, 25 years later, I was able to include it on a CD that we did. I love it. I love it. I, I know exactly what you mean is that, you, you know, it used to be in the old days, you'd run to the record store and you would get the album and, and, and couldn't believe what, what do you mean? They didn't include that or what are they putting that in? That's source music. Why is that in there? You know, it's interesting, the choices that were made and, uh, how great it is that you were able to actually make a difference and get it, get it included in a re-release. That's terrific. Let's, uh, Let's listen to this for ourselves. This is a, a, a cue from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The cue is called Enterprise Attacks Reliant, and this is written by James Horner. Did um, I'm, I'm curious because you you have been involved in so many uh, CD releases that in some cases were reissues or uh, or brand new releases, just things that weren't released when they were originally come, came out. Were any of the composers, the original composers, did they get involved at all in the in the uh, re-releases or the releases that you did? Almost never, and I did that deliberately to to cut them out so that they couldn't cause trouble. <laughs> that sounds a little um, unkind, but sometimes um, artists have a, uh, they can have some 
very specific opinions about what they like and what they didn't like. And our particular CD series, we were treating these scores more like documents, where it was like a document dump, where we wanted to give the collectors the whole thing. And uh, sometimes that's musically not as pleasurable to listen to than if you're really curating it and trying to make it sound like a record album. And I was afraid that the artists, if they got involved, would, would want to leave things off or they'd be upset about this, that, or the other thing and, and not let me present it the way that I thought the audience wanted to hear it. So I just tried to keep my head down and not involve them. That, that uh, makes sense. A few exceptions. Uh, I remember when we did Big Wednesday, I worked with Basil Polidorus. Um, we used his engineer and he did it with me. And, and, and that was a, a special week, spending some time with him. That actually, that makes total sense to me when you explain it that way, because I could see them kind of muddling up the process and second guessing whether or not they want, you know, this, this cue included or not, or, you know, we need to remix that. Or, I mean, I could see that happening and getting, getting in your way. So it's makes total sense to me. I can understand that. Um, did you ever hear from any composers, uh, after our release that, you know, gee, thank you for doing this, or, you know, I really appreciate you giving new life to this to the score uh, yeah i did and most of the time it was very uh, complimentary and they seemed very happy and i suppose if they weren't happy they didn't bother to complain to me uh, elmer bernstein was very happy when we resurrected the view from pompey's head hmm. um i seem to remember you know what i don't remember it's I guess I kind of blocked that out because I was always afraid that the next thing out of their mouths would be that they were sore about this, about something. Sometimes they'd be odd. You know, they would say, I don't like that picture of me that you used in the packaging. And, and we'd say, well, we wanted to use a vintage picture of how old you were when you wrote it. And they're like, yeah, but I don't look like that anymore. And I'm like, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> no, I can see how they would and, muddle and, it up. You know, win odd sort of non-relationship with Jerry Goldsmith where he, a lot, of a lot of composers thought it was kind of cute and interesting that this kid was publishing this newsletter and this magazine and like reviewing soundtrack CDs. And a lot of them didn't care or were at least like sort of polite through their offices to. And then Jerry Goldsmith was sort of weirdly personal about the fact that he didn't like it. And huh. yeah, he was kind of a, an odd guy and kind of wore his heart in his sleeve that way. And he had a, his son, Joel, was kind of a troublemaker. And anytime we, we said like a, a critical word about one of Jerry's latter day scores that we thought were a little too sweet or maybe a little dated, like Joel went out of his way to fax it to his dad, just to <sighs> his dad. So I kind of heard like secondhand through Jerry's agent or through his assistant that like he, he really loathed us and and um, I met him once or twice and kind of had, it was a little uncomfortable. So, but I did hear from Jerry's agent, who was, who was a mutual friend, that like Jerry's agent would take over Wild Rovers when we did a Wild Rovers CD. And Jerry immediately goes, oh, that's the original soundtrack, not the re-recording. And it was kind of, I guess, nostalgic to hear some of the stuff. So it was, a, it was a, as I said, a complicated non-relationship. And, uh, and then he died. So, um, well, I've so heard he was, he was kind of a rough, I heard he was kind of had a rough personality or, or could be kind of gruff anyway, I think. Right. Um, you know, he was very beloved and very sweet and, and, um, 
an institution unto himself, certainly in the community here. And then he, but he could be a little um, gruff and a little inarticulate, depending on what you were asking him and why you were asking it. So, you know, he was a human being and, and, and um, had uh, his own, his own reactions to people and, and um, but was not, was not the kind of, uh, sort of courtly professor that John Williams is publicly. Right. But that leads us into the next selection that you had that would be appropriate to play. Oh, it's one of his best known scores and it's really unique and different. Uh, I'm talking about the main title from the film Chinatown written by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking on that one. Well, the film is a masterpiece. Um, I mean, it's really like one of the greatest movies ever made, and and it's one of Jerry's greatest scores. And it was one of those rare times when his uh, his forte as a genre composer could meld so seamlessly with something that really, as a movie, is like high art. Uh, you know, it's a genius movie, and it, it's um, and it was kind of the the. It was, I was thinking it was, it's the thing that probably caused him the most frustration as he got older, which was that he was kind of pigeonholed as genre. He was the sci-fi guy or the horror guy or the, mm -hmm. or the, you know, he, or the action movie guy. And I think what he really wanted to do were these human stories. And, um, so this is the, this is perfect because it's, it's, the, it's a pinnacle of genre, but it's just a pinnacle of human storytelling too. And it's, it's such a beautiful theme and such a, 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 a he, the orchestra is unique. It's four harps, four pianos, strings, and a trumpet. Um, yes, and some percussion, I think. And the, the just the soundscape he made for that nineteen uh, thirties Los Angeles, which which was the Los Angeles of his childhood. It's so evocative and so melodic and, and so beautiful. Perfect. Let's have a listen right now. This is the main theme from Chinatown. Music by Jerry Goldsmith.
I'm curious what, and I, you know, I, this may get kind of dull. I don't know how many steps there would be, but what were some of the things, some of the hoops that you had to, to do in order to get an old score released? In other words, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get into excruciating detail, but just kind of in a big picture way. I know it's not just as simple as, oh, look at these tapes. Oh, let's put them in the machine and put them on a CD. I mean, there was a lot involved, isn't there? Well, yes. The first step was having a relationship, a licensing relationship with the studio. Um, because the studios historically didn't want to deal with this stuff because it was so small for them. They didn't make any money, any meaningful money. So you had to find lawyers and, and business people who kind of understood what you wanted to do and figured, oh, okay, it's a little bit of work for us, but why not? And we'll get our masters restored. And so I was lucky to have a few relationships with, especially with Warner Brothers, where they let me do um, dozens, if not hundreds of scores from their vaults. And so once we had that, that trust and, and a, a process, then it was a, um, the next step would be to pull the tapes from the vaults and take a look at them and look at the log sheets and make sure that they looked like they were all there and they are all usable and we had the right format. And then we would pay to get them transferred. And then we'd put them in the computer into a software called Pro Tools and, and organize them and, and clean them up as we had to do and do a new, new mix where we had to do a new mix, you know, taking, for example, three or eight or 16 or 24 channels of how they recorded the orchestra and fold it down to just left and right for home audio. Right. So we had to do that and make sure everything was um, sounded correct. And and uh, then we also had to write the liner notes and pull up artwork and make sure all the packaging was appropriate and and then submit it for approval to the studio and and pay all the royalties. So th- those were the the steps of the process. And I really liked having a production flow and liked having like upwards of 20 of these in the works at the time. So I had a, I could, I could map out my release schedule and, and was able to have all of our vendors and all of our personnel working on something at some point in the process so that nothing was bottlenecking. And I, I guess the royalties, I guess like a cut would go to, in this case, let's say Warner brothers, a cut would go to the composer or, a cut goes to the musicians. Is that, and yeah, there's all sorts of people, right? Yeah. And we were, yeah, it was, it was chronically difficult to, to get people to take your money. Sometimes you really have to chase them <laughs> and say, I owe you this money. And they go for what, what is that? What is this? What, you know, and cause they don't have these 30 year old contracts that they're back and call. So, um, you know, these are the kinds of, uh, frustrations that built up and why I called it a day after 250 albums. But, but it was, it was, it was a, a great, um, a great privilege and, and a great thrill to be the curator of this music and, and then to make fans happy. So it was, it was, it was very special to do this. Well, and, and obviously it meant something, you know, just telling the story about the, the cue left out of Star Trek too. I mean, it, it was personal for you in many cases as well. So that's a, that's terrific. Um, we move into a kind of a detect another detective show, uh, as for a cue that you chose from a movie called The Big Sleep. I'm trying to remember Robert Mitchum, I think, right? Was in yeah, that? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is the main title from The Big Sleep, written by Jerry Felding, uh, or Fielding, excuse me. Um, what uh, What made you include that on your list of favorites? 
Well, Jerry Fielding's one of my favorite composers, and I and I wanted to pick something by him because he is, he is sort of a deep cut, something that collectors would know about and cineasts would know about. But because he died young, uh, he died in 1980 at a heart attack in his 50s. He didn't have the chance to go on and do more films. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular theme, I just really liked, and I always liked the sound of it and the vibe of it. And, um, uh, and it was one of the first times when I really got into film music and was listening to film music without having previously known and liked the movie. And I specifically remember as a collector, there was this company called Bay Cities and they released uh, these Jerry Fielding collections, which were totally illegal, by the way, they were not <laughs> licensed, um, but they put out these Jerry Fielding collections and they, and it was when I was beginning to meet people from Los Angeles who then would send me things to review. And, and so I have these very nostalgic memories of being in my house as a teenager and listening to this album on the boombox and, and typing up, uh, up, up my newsletter and, and running my little business. So there, there's some sort of extra textual associations for me too. Sure. Yeah, I understand that. All right. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is the main title from the film called the big sleep. And it's written by Jerry Fielding.
Why don't we dive into a, a, another favorite of yours? Because this is one I'm not familiar with at all. Uh, not only the film, but but the composer as well. Uh, you chose a, a, a cue from a movie called Cowboy Bebop. The cue's called Tank, and I, I'm not familiar with the composer. Yoko Kon, Kano, is that how it's pronounced? I don't know how it's pronounced. She's Japanese, <laughs> and, and she's an anime composer. And She does many things, but among them she does anime, which is Japanese animation. Okay. So I wanted to give you like a total, totally other side of my uh, love for this stuff. So there's this, um, there is a series called Cowboy Bebop. It's an animated Japanese show that amongst sci-fi fans is like the pinnacle of, um, of anime. It came out in the late 90s, and it's about these bounty hunters in, in the solar system in the future. And it's really a special show. It's, it, it's, it's brilliantly made. And in fact, they're doing an American remake live action that, that uh, John Cho is going to be in. And Yoko Kano is this brilliant composer um, uh, who, who has done some of my favorite anime soundtracks. And for, for Cowboy Bebop, she did this uh, great throwback noir jazz score. And, and this is the jazzy main title music. Okay. Well, and I did, I did uh, listen to it because you had sent it to me earlier. And, uh, and I, I liked it. So it'll be, I think our audience will as well. Let's go ahead and play this. This is... Um, uh, a cue called Tank from uh, the anime series Cowboy Bebop, and it's written by Yoko Kano. Let's have a listen.
do you think all soundtracks are are uh, listenable on their own, or do they just really, or, or are there certain scores you think that serve the needs of the film but really aren't listenable apart from that? Does that make sense when I'm asking? Yeah, of course it does, and that's something something we've long discussed, Frank. And yeah, I think <laughs> it's got to be the latter, and it, which was contrary to my practices as an album producer, where I would give them the whole thing, you know, like Quint says in Jaws, the head, the, the head, the tail, the whole damn fish, because I know that's what the collectors wanted. But yeah, of course there are scores that are more subliminal and more textural and and devoid of context, probably kind of dull. To listen to. I mean, I think the score for Chernobyl is absolutely brilliant. I love that series, which just finished on HBO. Mm-hmm. But that's a perfect example to me of something that's that's so kind of abstract and moody that I don't think I'd be listening to the soundtrack album all that much. But I, I, I love the score, and I think she did great work, and it's absolutely the correct score for the show. Good example, yeah. And I've I've, I've yet to see that, and I need to as well. Do you um? Well, let, let, let's go into our, and do your next one, and then there will be a couple of other questions I'd like to ask. You uh, You chose another classic. You were talking about how these were easy picks for you, but uh, there's nothing wrong with choosing really good stuff. It's out there. Uh, the next cue you had uh, chosen to play was uh, from The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, The Ecstasy from uh, the Ecstasy of Gold, written by uh, Ennio Morricone. Um, tell us a little bit about your thinking on uh, including that amongst your favorites. Well, it's in the pantheon. I mean, how is it not? I think that it's it's really one of the most arresting visual sequences of all time. Towards the end of that movie, when, when he finds the cemetery and he's looking all over the cemetery for the right headstone with the golds underneath. And, and it just starts so simply and it becomes this glorious, glorious symphonic with the chorus. And it's just, it's, yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. And and this is from a man I I'm, I can't remember I, how many how many pieces of music how many scores has Marconi done I mean it's some incredible amount Yeah I don't I don't know I mean I've heard in the hundreds I've heard different numbers I've never counted myself It's a little bit um, he he uses he really he, well he uses his style but it's more the European style and I've heard I am aware of how he's been so prolific. And part of the reason why is because um, he'll write a handful of themes for a movie and then the score will be comprised of variations of those themes. So they're brilliant, brilliant themes and he is really a genius of this art form, but it's not the kind of um, close scoring that John Williams would do for a Star Wars movie, which is much more labor intensive. It's 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 not as labor intensive if you're writing a couple of themes and then you're doing a slow version of theme A without the trumpets and then you're doing a faster version of these 16 bars from theme B. So it lets him work faster and be more prolific, but it's a different style. But it still works just as well, I think. Well, it does for the for it depends on the on the on the picture, really. True. True. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is from the good and the bad and the ugly. Uh, The cue is called The Ecstasy of Gold, and it's written by Ennio Morricone.
what was the most rewarding project that you worked on? The thing that you kind of, you just look back and say, wow, I'm so glad I did that. Or that was such a great job. Or just, is there, is there one that stands out or a couple that stand out that were just extremely rewarding for you? There's several. Um, yeah, I think that the way Logan's run came together is a favorite of mine. But probably the answer to that question is the 15 CD box set that I, we did for La La Land Records. So it's not on my label. But that was probably the biggest project. Uh, and I say we because there were many of us who worked on it as a big team. Sure. But it was very complicated for the licensing and 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 it was and that is so significant for Star Trek fans to give them every last note of music from the original series. It was right. so culturally significant, and there was such a big audience for it, and and an audience that had been waiting for so very long to hear it. So that that was probably that that's the one I point to as 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 being the most ambitious and the most successful in the end. That and that makes total sense. I mean, and and how lucky that. For a TV series, iconic as it is, but still that 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 those that those tapes were still somewhere, still stored, and not not had been destroyed well, or, so or thrown away to make room for something else. You know, well they um, they had been possibly thrown away or possibly stolen from Paramount in the early seventies, and they changed hands at least twice, maybe three times. Oh wow! Yeah, and I don't want to tell the whole story, but I but they were. They were safely in the possession of GMP Crescendo Records, who had acquired them from another collector who had been part of this part of the Star Trek family, who had who had bought them off of somebody else to, to protect them. So oh they, they, yeah, it was very very lucky, and and uh, let's just say that there was a check that changed hands, and then there was um, like eight eight. Uh, tubs cartons of these tapes that were loaded into my very tiny subaru and driven on a foggy night down mulholland drive to my <laughs> apartment before i could bring them to the engineer so it was a it's a sort of a, a funny story but a, a happy one with a, with a good ending so, so, sounds like a movie that could be made about it well i'm not i wouldn't go that far but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a fun story but you've uh, you've chosen another classic film uh bullet for your uh one of your final selections of uh favorites uh shifting gears and uh, by a composer that i just have a love affair with as well lalo uh Schifrin. tell us uh you know you're thinking on uh, on uh choosing that amongst the all-time favorites of yours well again it's a it's a great great film and with a great score in the film and this is one of the most memorable sequences when it's not the car chase itself, the famous car chase, but it's the kind of st stalking where the cars are, are tailing, he's tailing them before the car chase. And, uh, and it, I, ha I really do love uh, the, the 60s, the jazzy style and, and the bluesy style. And Lalo Schifrin was one of those, one of the great composers of that style. And, right. And it's, such a, it's just such a great piece. And I even remember... I watched the film with some friends of mine like like 20 years ago and and a lot of the friends were not particularly movie fans or certainly not movie music fans and one a young woman who was watching said wow this music's cool and so it's it it really is so that's why I picked it it is and I you know I just recently saw a, a short documentary on on him uh, Lalo Schifrin and a fascinating story 
uh, about how he, he came into the film music world and how he came to America, originally from Argentina. It's I, I highly recommend it for anybody that's a fan of his or just a fan of film music in general. You can find it on YouTube. It's a really, really interesting story, an interesting man. Well, let's, let's have a listen to this. Again, this is from the uh, film Bullet. Uh, the cue is called Shifting Gears, and this is written by Lalo Sheffrin. sure we mentioned it at the beginning of the program memory fails me but we're going to divide up into into two different parts here uh, but, but before we uh, sign off for today's program and get into part two uh, I know that you have 
started to branch out and into filmmaking. We mentioned that a little bit in the introduction. Um, I got the impression that kind of like the film score thing had kind of run its course and you wanted to branch out and do something different. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your branching out into a, into filmmaking and, uh, and what you've got going on right now. Well, right now I, I, I made, um, a science fiction short film as a proof of concept for a feature film. Mm-hmm. It was crowdfunded and we raised money for this, this time last year. I had a lot of help from the soundtrack labels that, that donated stock that I could give away to our donors. So I raised money online and then we made this 15 minute film that I, I wish I could uh, show online now. I can't. I got to hold it back because we're trying to get it into film festivals. Right. They won't take it if it's on the internet. So it's a very, it's a very competitive environment. It's very hard to get yourself established. I didn't go to film school. Um, and it's hard. I've been writing a lot, but it's, it's hard to get people to read scripts. It's hard to get people even to, to watch 15 minutes. It's a, uh, it, but there's, there are great opportunities out there, and I felt like I needed to just sort of go and make a demo for myself as a filmmaker. So, so that's what I did with this uh, short film, which is called Sky Fighter. And have, you, have, you, have you submitted that? Yes, I, we've submitted to a handful of festivals, and we're waiting to hear. Right. And we used to have a great one here in Baton Rouge. Hopefully, it will come back again next year. But uh, uh, New Orleans has a great one, too, so it would uh, behoove you to, to look into that one. I think they're just starting now to accept submissions. That's not a bad way to go. It's a good way to get some exposure, and, and, uh, and people will take notice if it's good. If the, if the story works or the production value is there, they're, they're going to notice. So I, I wish you good luck with that. And well, it's, thank um, uh, look, you've, you've been successful, obviously, up to this point. There's no reason why that should stop right now. So we'll uh, we'll keep our eyes open for that. Uh, as I, I mentioned, we're going to do this. I'm sorry? That's what I tell my wife. <laughs> Does it work? No. <laughs> uh, tell me about it. We'll be around. Um, <laughs> we'll, uh, uh, as I said, we're going to do a two-part episode. What I want to do is to... Uh, invite Lucas back for uh, our second part where we're going to talk exclusively about his work on the re-release of the uh, the James Bond soundtracks that he did uh, gosh it's hard to believe it's almost like 2000 years ago 2000 20 years ago or something like that so and so that's what uh, that's what we'll focus on next time when we get together at uh, what's the score Uh, for the time being Lucas again I really appreciate you being with us today Uh, there's only one thing left to say and that's simply this that my name's Frank Wilson My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?